Tintenberg, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Blockchain Hub member Dr. Payman Kizer, um, as well as Associate Professor Chris Berg to discuss blockchain governance, DAOs, and game theory. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chelsea. So, Payman, welcome to the podcast. It would be fantastic to start off with hearing a little bit more about your background. Yeah, thanks, Kilty. Uh, I'm a, a microeconomist, an applied microeconomist in some sense, and I've worked on various markets, the design of markets, and uh, perhaps uh, auction design, game theory, uh, mo- mostly from applied perspective. I have worked on uh, various markets like the market for emissions, where you use uh, carbon emission permits to allocate to firms that would like to uh, basically purchase these permits to emit uh, CO2. Uh, I've worked on uh, real estate markets, I've worked on um, uh, energy markets, as well as now blockchain, where basically the market design aspect is very interesting and so relevant to what I do as a kind of applied market designer. Yeah, fantastic. So I guess that really takes us to some of the broader framing of uh, this podcast. And actually, the first episode we ever did was on sort of crypto economics and talking to that from an institutional economist's perspective. So I guess returning to some of these foundational principles of blockchain networks and governance um, in the podcast today, Chris, can you kick us off with kind of articulating what is the broad goal of blockchain systems or why governance is a relevant topic to talk about? Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. And it's great to have payment on the podcast too, because fundamentally these blockchain systems are um, distributed systems that have an economic layer on them. They, they, um, we built in, um, or the community has built in mechanisms, economic mechanisms, by which we put real value at stake or spend real value in the form of, in Bitcoin's case, um, computational um, uh, energy directed towards computation to protect the network and to align incentives so that everybody's got an economic incentive um, uh, to, to, to maintain the network and, and, and keep it secure and so forth. And what I'm interested to dig into today with payment is um, uh, what, how we can understand those mechanisms better. So um, Payman is an expert in auctions, as he's mentioned, um, an expert in mechanism design. There are auctions and economic mechanisms throughout crypto. Um, uh, the question, though, you asked me was about governance. And as I've been, I've actually been reflecting on this in the last couple of days. Fundamentally, what's interesting about blockchain is that it is a governance technology. It's a coordination mechanism. It's not the same as a traditional distributed system um, that, um, say, for instance, like like Paxos or something like that, that is used um, uh, by many large corporates. It's a distributed system that has governance built in um, or uses mechanisms in order to how do we govern the the new transactions on the network and and those governance mechanisms are uniformly economic mechanisms so digging into that i think um uh, uh i think will be a valuable use of our time couldn't agree more so i guess this comes back to um some of the kind of fundamental ethos of really um bitcoin as the first sort of public peer-to-peer decentralized network and that was about you know 
sort of multiple agents participating or coordinating through a, a distributed system need incentive alignment. So Payman, can you talk us through kind of the fundamental um, principles of coordination in this setting, which I guess, you know, pertain to, to game theory? Uh, sure. Actually, if you start from Bitcoin, uh, the let's say the, the first type of blockchain that we know formally, uh, the, the governance essentially has various parts fundamentally. One, one major part is the consensus mechanism where basically the new uh, blocks are created and mined. Uh, however, a bigger picture or one, one bigger, uh, basically one more general question to ask is how do we govern a decentralized network? So in the case of Bitcoin, given the less sophistication of the uh, problem, you could simply have initiate an initial algorithm and then the algorithm will basically incentivize consensus and then you leave it to the to the peers and then they will basically maintain the network over time however if you make this this decentralized network more sophisticated and come up with various type of decisions not just a, a, a digital money perhaps smart contracts and and more uh, complicated interactions then you require a more complicated governance. So it's not going to be some simple, uh, not, not, I mean, not computationally simple, but what I'm saying, some ex ante existing consensus mechanism that can go through and would allow the, the um, network to function properly. The reason for that is that because of change over time. So suppose you start with a, a decentralized network that is planning to do X. So over time, that X could change. The, the players in this uh, network could change. The uh, regulation and rule could change. The, the technology could change. So perhaps changing is a, an, uh, an important part of a, a decentralized network that must happen over time. And the question is, how do we govern the decisions with regards to these changes? So how do we... Uh, decide what to do if, for instance, there's, there's, there are two decisions that we have to make at time T, A versus B, how do we decide about that? So these are the fundamental things about the government in a decentralized network. However, there are so many various things that can happen. For instance, you can go further, deeper into the blockchain and there are some, some more details in there. Look, it's an interesting point because I've been um, looking at I think a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about the Bitcoin governance crisis, but the Bitcoin governance crisis where, and, and, and this was the, um, should we, um, should we expand the block size? Block size um, was one megabyte fixed at one megabyte. Um, and the huge debate from really 2013 ish all the way to 2017, 18 about whether we should, um, we should increase it to two megabytes or 10 megabytes or 20 or, or what have you, all these different proposals. Um, what's interesting about that though, in retrospect, is that the um, uh, so first of all, it, it resolved in a really interesting way because it turns out that the miners themselves, who many people thought had the predominant um, economic control or bargaining power of the network, turns out that they 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 weren't the um, weren't the absolute. They didn't have the largest bargaining power. Um, but it's interesting to think about the evolution of Bitcoin since. So there have been changes to the Bitcoin protocol, but the stakeholder set is changing as the crypto ecosystem is changing as well. Bitcoin had a position in 
um, at least 2015, when this um, debate was really most vociferous, um, uh, that it, that it doesn't quite have now, and you've got um, you you've got a, a a more isolated Bitcoin only community interacting with or interfacing with um, a, a different one as well. So again, the stakeholders to to payments point change and therefore the implied and implicit governance structures of the network change as a result. Now, our job as economists, both payment and I are economists, our job is to try to make that tractable, right? So actually, can what, what can we learn about that from a from a formal perspective? Um, I, I think there's there's a lot that we can do there, but it's also really interesting from a sort of an evolutionary dynamic. Um, uh, to see how the stakeholder the the stakeholder roles change as competition changes across the rest of the sector. Yeah, I'm really interested as well in what you mentioned, payment around the kind of adaptivity of these systems, or or you know how they how they change and new rules, regulations, upgrades. Um, obviously, my research is on resilience, but from a, a kind of different disciplinary perspective. Um, so I'm curious to dive. A little bit more into that and you kind of talked about these decision trade-offs like how like how do you make um, decisions about what to optimize for so could you dig a little bit more into that in terms of what are the kind of um, functions or parameters that are being considered here and how you think about those yeah that that's a good question Kelsey and actually you can let's let's make the problem a little bit simple say suppose there's one DAO and and there's just one goal for that particular DAO, uh, saying, for instance, purchasing something as the simplest possible case. Uh, Imagine that that is the U.S. Constitution for argument. Yes, for instance, exactly. So uh, you can look at this DAO as a country, and all the members are citizens of this country. However, is that there are some differences with the conventional ways that we govern in countries. I mean, in countries, the conventionally people vote, and in a democracy. 50 plus one, 1% one vote will, will basically decide about who is the winner. To appreciate or understand the aspects that are different in blockchain, you need to look at what people have. First of all, citizenship is voluntarily. So you perhaps prefer this DAO. That's why you came in. It's not by birth, mostly. And second of all, the what you've got is not just a an identity as a person. You've got token. You've got time. And on top of that, perhaps you've got various skills. So if you look at this DAO as a decentralized network that would like to somehow uh, differentiate between members, between their aspects, but the first two things that to come to mind in order to decide who gets what, how much vote is the amount of token they decide to stake and for what time. So these are the two most important aspects that are that are basically different from the conventional way of governance that we know in societies. Yeah, so you're sort of talking about how um, mechanisms, uh, I guess, uh, replace sort of traditional state systems of governance. Um, so could you go more into what some of these are in terms of what are some of the, the mechanisms of governance operating in blockchain networks? Sure. Um, so what we can think of is a now, now keep these time and tokens as two variables. Now what we could think of is various methods that we can transfer these tokens and times to a vote. 
That's what we call a voting function. So even in the conventional type of voting, there are voting functions. However, in most cases, they don't have time in it, time element in it, because here you can stake a, a token for it for a given time. That's why we have an extra dimension. So uh, the most famous type of voting is one token, one vote. So which is which is very popular in most of the DAOs, where whatever token you've got, um, you get as many votes as the equivalent of the number of tokens. So for instance, if there are one, one million tokens in a DAO, there will be one million votes. If I, if I own thousands of them, I get 10,000 votes. Uh, I don't want to get into the cons and pros of these methods yet, but let, let me just describe a little bit of the type of the different variety of these votings. Another one that we know from conventional voting literature in game theory is the quadratic voting, where you use a quadratic function and there are definite, definitely advantages of these quadratic functions, but I'll get to that later. You use quadratic function to translate the uh, tokens into a vote. Why quadratic? Again, I get to that. However, there are many more ways that you can, you can come up with it. So what we suggest, uh, me and my colleagues in BIH, we are thinking of, we are currently writing a paper that we suggest something called bond voting. So perhaps you can use bonds as a means of translating tokens and time to votes. So what are the issues with uh, one token, one vote? The one token, one vote, the problem is that whoever gets the 50% plus one number of tokens, then they have dictatorship powers. So quadratic voting tries to address that in a way that would not allow the number of votes linearly increase. Uh, however, there are always cons and pros. There are all different objectives here. Um, so, Payman, just stepping back, it strikes me that um, your research focuses on two fields that people might think are very, very different. So on one of them, you've got auction theory, which is trading. Um, it's sort of a, a, a the purest form of trading. Um, and and as I've as I've I've got to know your research, um, really everything's an auction, right? But um, uh, on the other hand, you're you're talking about voting mechanisms, which traditionally we put quite separately into a different category of activity that um, uh, around politics and around community organisation. Um, are, are auctions and voting systems the same, or are they uh, 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 are they actually the same, or are they as different as I'm spelling it out? Yeah, again, that's a very good question. Uh, they are in some sense the same, they're, they're in some sense different. So if you look at the game theory in general, there are two types of games, cooperative and non-cooperative. Uh, votings are, uh, mechanisms are usually used in cooperative games when a group of agents are trying to co collectively make a decision. However, auctions are more common in non-cooperative games where individuals bid in auctions just for their own sake of benefit and therefore their own payoffs. However, why do these are connected? Because especially in the blockchain environment, if you look at the whole the number of tokens in a DAO as a sacred resource or limited resource, then the allocation of these tokens to all the participants is a sort of allocated mechanism that relates to auction. So we're dealing with a very nuanced or let's say very uh, uh, limited difference between game, game cooperative and, and non-cooperative game theory here. We'll switch from there every now and then when we talk about blockchains. Uh, so for instance, 
different layers of DAOs and different layers of decentralized mechanisms would result to uh, either of these two games. So I may cooperate with another agent in a DAO when I'm going to decide whether we, dis we choose uh, policy A or B, when we were going to not compete with each other if it turns out to be a, an auction of basically um, getting the right for the block space. So uh, both of them are possible. That's, that's why it makes it more interesting. And that's why I'm, I'm very interested in, in these uh, mechanisms. So they are interconnected as well. So uh, for instance, you would like to decide how do you allocate the block space in an Ethereum um, network so that decision must come from a governance point of view. So how did you initially decide about the governance, governance mechanism would definitely affect the auction mechanism decision as well, because there are obviously various things and goals that you get from an auction. Uh, would you like to, to set up the auction only for revenue purpose? Would you like to set up the auction such that you get as many transactions and as many people in, within a block? Would you like to just simply reduce the price volatility to make sure that the miners get at least some, some revenue for mining a new block. So all of these would be decided at a previous layer, which is the governance layer. And that governance layer basically has been decided by a cooperative game, which is the voting function. So if you allow people one token, one vote, then whoever has more token can decide how to, to set up the auctions. No, it's it's really interesting. And so, what you're describing is basically the difference between the sort of constitutional levels rule of the, rules of the game, where we all have to agree or all have to we have to figure out a way that we can sort of consent to that series of rules, or at least identify the community's perspective. And then, once we've got the rules of the game, then we can you know fight amongst each other for um for for resources or or, or what have you, or at least just you know or, or more positively um uh, do gains from trade and so forth. I, I thought payment though, um, sorry, Kelsey, I'm going to take over a little bit here if you don't mind. Um, uh, I thought payment okay. that um, since we've got you on, and I'm not sure that we've covered this on the podcast, um, I'd be really keen to get your view about things like um, quadratic voting. Um, so quadratic voting um, is um, uh, has been used and discussed very widely in the crypto community um, and some of the other radical markets mechanisms uh, Glenn Wheel and um, Vitalik have been talking about in, in great detail together. Um, I'd be interested in your view on it because not only have they, the, the people have tried to implement quadratic voting, but we've gotten variations to quadratic voting, which is um, uh, things like quadratic funding in Gitcoin that um, Kelsey's been doing a great deal of research on. I'd be interested in your view about First of all, explaining what is quadratic voting and what is the goal, and 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 your assessment of the of the value of quadratic voting and those sorts of mechanisms or the challenges and limits that they might present. Sure. Uh, so to describe quadratic voting, I'll get back to the one token one vote and the problem with that. So in the one token one vote situation, you essentially allow people to vote in a linear fashion. So uh, therefore. Whatever you add in your token stakes, you'll get equivalent amount of vote. The problem with that is obviously uh, the 50 plus 50% plus one power and how people can stake larger proportion of the tokens and get control over the decisions. 
So quadratic voting, uh, something that we know from, a, the, uh, let's say, game theory, cooperative game theory literature, uh, is something that allows people, either from the cost perspective, cost of voting, or the benefit of voting, to get to a, a benefit from overall function of voting, which is quadratic. In a sense that then one vote would not essentially give you Sorry, one token would not essentially give you one vote. It gives you something less than that. So it's in a decreasing fashion. Uh, so if you put one step back, and because I believe that we are entering an entirely new uh, era and we need to structure everything from the beginning. So whatever we have from conventional voting, Aris theorem, and et cetera, perhaps may not work here. We have to construct everything from scratch. Uh, I believe that there are so some axioms that we can come in and come up with in order to make sure there are at least a reasonable understanding of what has to be done in a voting function in order to be functionable in a um, in a decentralized network. So one of the things that that we came up with in the working paper that I I, I told you earlier is that we come up with an idea of a diminishing influence of tokens. So that is essentially what quadratic voting is trying to address and saying that your extra token should not give you exactly equal amount of votes, should give you at least as one or perhaps something less than that in order to not allow you to get to, to too much power of the whole network because that is against the decentralization purpose of the network. So in that sense, quadratic voting works very well and is trying to address a, the problem very good because... Uh, you reduce the number of votes, so perhaps your optimal point is somewhere below a, a large proportion of the whole power of the network, and that perhaps it would allow the decentralization function work well. However, there is a problem with quadratic voting, especially in the, uh, in the decentralized network problem, and that is the civil attack. Uh, let me describe that a bit further. So when you, when you not allow a person with 100 tokens, to add another 100 token and improve their voting power twice, then you simply incentivize them to create another identity and perhaps use two identities to get more votes in total. Uh, uh, so the, 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 the current blockchain networks and DAOs came up with a solution to that, and that is mainly through transaction costs, because if you keep creating identities and keep voting with different identities, you can e easily increase the transaction costs and not to allow people to, to use a civil attack. However, I think this is a little bit against the general purpose of blockchain and decentralized network, which was from a crypto economics perspective, from institutional perspective, we, we were suggesting that the, one of the biggest advantage of blockchains are to reduce transaction costs. Now, we should not come up with a transaction cost as a solution to a problem, because you're essentially going back to the first step, which was initially not having a blockchain and, and doing things with lots of transaction costs. Therefore, a quadratic function or quadratic voting may not work perfectly in that environment, and you may come up with alternatives. Uh, you may sacrifice the, the, the quadratic ad, um, advantage, which is diminishing influence of tokens. Instead, you may use time commitment in order to get rid of civil attack. So it is still working progress. I think it is still a huge, there's a still huge potential for research in this environment where people can come up with functions that has the advantages of quadratic voting and quadratic functions, and at the same time can prevent civil attack without transaction costs. That's a really interesting 
research area, um, obviously we've been looking at time waiting voting and um, I've published in the past on commitment voting, you're working on um, bond voting, there are other um, mechanisms in the field about time weighted voting, for instance, like conviction voting that's used in um, or a variation is used in curve um, uh, and some other protocols. Um, I, I'd be interested just, you know, what is the design space there in time weighted voting and why would why is time weighted voting an interesting area of, uh, to investigate? Yeah, especially in relation to Sybil as well. Like, how does time change mm -hmm. the Sybil threat? Sure. Uh, the thing is, actually, time add, adds a new dimension to the game, as we said, and mathematically makes the problem entirely different. So if it's just a token, you can simply choose the number of tokens that maximize your payoff. However, when time comes in, then one very important economic concept that we call opportunity cost will be added to the game. So time means opportunity cost in economics. It's not just the accounting cost. It means that if I want to commit T amount of time to any network in regards to, I mean, entirely financially, suppose I would like to commit X amount of money to a network, then uh, what was my best alternative outside relative to what I'm doing here? And that would be my cost. So the interesting part of adding the time dimension here is that you, you would require to un understand the opportunity cost. And why is that important? It's important because if, if a member, if an agent dedicates T amount of time into a blockchain network, it essentially means that that person prefers to do that and it is their best option. So at the end of the day, you would like to have people in your network who are incentivized to do the right thing. And now when we get to the civil attack, there is somehow some very close connection here. Uh, we're assuming those who commit civil attacks are not legitimate members of the network. So they are, they're malicious members. They're, they're, they don't, they don't want, they just want to, uh, take their own advantage and they don't care about the whole network. However, if the time commitment, if the time dimension is added to the voting function properly, then whoever, those whoever chooses X, T amount of time to commit, that's their best choice. And that will reduce the chance of uh, malicious activities, uh, perhaps including civil attack. Uh, because in, and, and technically, I mean, this is, this is a design the, um, basically inside, but from a technical perspective, also if you require to stay for uh, in 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 a network for a given amount of time, there's less chance that you come up with a malicious attack and a hack and and lead because usually most of the hacks in in the decentralized networks and blockchain happen within a few seconds. So if people must stay for a while, then you're essentially reducing this chance from a technical perspective as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. And so you've talked about, um, you kind of mentioned design a couple of times and that they're thinking about this from a design space perspective. What's the difference between design and evaluation when you're looking at these functions and mechanisms? And so the, the, that, to answer that question, I would like to come up with an example from a, let's say, construction. Uh, the, a person who designed a home would would think differently than a person who built the home. So uh, engineers usually think about building aspects. The constraint, the address are, are very important and careful, but in some sense, their hands are tied because when you're in the building environment, you have to follow some patterns and uh, you would not be able to think 
uh, and, and a step earlier. So when I say design, I mean from the scratch, before you, you do anything to a DAO, how would you design that in order to, to, to get to the goals? For instance, if I want to design a home such that it is uh, thief-proof, for instance, I mean, it's less, there's less chance for um, uh, being robbed. And, and uh, so, for instance, I may come up with a design that has only one door in front of the home and all the uh, back, uh, back part of the home or the front backyards are just, uh, there's no door, for instance, or the fences are a little bit higher than usual. But when you're building a home, at that particular time, the way you can come up to, to prevent uh, uh, thieves is just to provide a more a stronger door or come up with a, a more complicated lock or more uh, a bigger lock, whatever. So that's the difference. So from the design perspective, you have a different approach. From building perspective, you have another, different, uh, another approach. Uh, so my understanding is that currently in the blockchain environment, the building approach has been done very well and over time by engineers. But in terms of design, we need to do a little bit more, especially with respect to research, because the research mostly tangled and related to game theory. And when you're doing design, you don't care about what's going to happen in reality. You create the reality. But when you're building, you're just working in reality. You cannot change anything because it's real world. You have this part, this, this size of the door, you have to make it bigger. I mean, you, you have to make it thicker. That's the most you can do. But in the design, you can just get rid of the door entirely. Yeah, that's such a great um, contextualization of, I guess, like where uh, the space is at in terms of coming up with these first principles that you mentioned earlier, or these kind of governance design patterns and why it's so important to have um, uh, sort of conceptual frameworks and lenses by which to um, to design from. Chris, do you have more to add to that? Yeah, no, I think it's um, it is super interesting. One of the questions that I have um, for Payman is that, I mean, Payman, you're you're a um, a very well trained economist, um, uh, and it strikes me that the expertise that you can bring um, to the crypto space is invaluable. My question is actually not about you though; about it's more about how can we encourage more of the um, uh, the academic expertise. Um, that is out there on questions like obviously your areas like auction design and um, game theory and mechanism design and so forth. But um, but across the board, how can we encourage more of our colleagues in academia to to focus on these questions? Um, I find them fundamentally interesting. I know you find them fundamentally interesting. I, I, I wonder um, how we can bring more skills into the space. Uh, that's a that's a great question. Actually, it's my day-to-day -day challenge as well because <laughs> honestly, now these days, research is so complicated that you cannot do them by your own. You require co-authors in a paper. And for me, as, as one of the few um, game theorists and mechanism designer in economics who is interested also in blockchain, the task is to uh, talk to my other colleagues who are only economists and somehow incentivize them to come up to, the, to, to this environment and work with me in, the, in, in future papers. So the answer to that, I would say, this, first of all, I'm sure this is going to happen, happen one way or another. So a year from now, mark my word, there will be more, many more economists and mechanism designers who are interested in this area than right now. 
and it's going to perhaps happen in an, in an exponential way, hopefully. But what we can do and is just to improve this connection in between. So we have this engineering element. Engineers, pretty smart. Uh, my understanding is that I, I, mean, I the one way that I incentivize my colleagues is say, if you don't do it, they will do it in two years. So just go, and, yeah, just go do the job. Just, just to try to, to, to use your knowledge in that domain because they're eventually going to learn this knowledge and they're eventually going to do the design part uh, perfectly. So I guess one way is just to provide a connection so it becomes some sort of hybrid uh, way in between. Have a little bit of engineering knowledge as well as enough in economics. We all have enough knowledge in economics. What we need to know is knowing a little bit more about engineering side of the game and then perhaps provide a sort of connection in between. Write some medium posts, write a conversation articles that are basically readable to the public and can attract as many people and just show them the opportunity there and lack of research in the very simple words that uh, yeah, so there is great opportunity in this in this area uh, in this area in this environment. Please come in and bring your expertise because you will be the first person who do these sort of research. I mean, literally the first person. I, I wrote an auction paper with another colleague with regards to NFTs, and that was literally uh, the first paper that was in investigating NFTs. Uh, RAM. I mean, edition NFTs that are sold uh, in Nifty Gateway. So it's, it's something awesome, and I think it's a great opportunity. So it's somehow our job and somehow perhaps engineer's job to get this connection done and perhaps bring more economies to the game. It's a, it's a really interesting space to do this too because um, what we're seeing is frontier ideas being adopted in very rapid time. Um, it, it used to take decades for a um, idea to come from um, the frontier of social science as we work or the frontier of engineering science um, and, and to come into production. It used to be a huge long process, but now we're seeing ideas invented, you know, less than five years ago being adopted, ideas that are being invented as they are being adopted themselves. I mean, this idea of time-weighted voting, um, time-weighted voting is not without some um, uh, academic pedigree, but the investigations into time-weighted voting far have been um, far outpaced by the implementations of time-weighted voting mechanisms. And even you know, e- even though we might be critical that they haven't been done so enough in the crypto space, we can see them in the real world already. Um, uh, and that is that is that is super cool. I guess I guess that that makes me. I, 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 sometimes I get a bit of a dark night of a soul there. That you know, we can come up with these ideas. But people are already implementing the payment, um, <clears throat> so you know our, our job is maybe to watch and advise. But fundamentally, um, uh, the space the space is adopting it because it's got this it's it's got a taste for experimentation. It's got a taste for novelty. It's got a taste for um, uh, boundary pushing at an institutional level. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Chris. And actually, a very important point. So, what we do in applied market design, and uh, let's suppose we're trying to somehow design a new market that hasn't been done before. We first use mathematic methods and game theory to come up with people's incentives. So we model people uh, interaction in a game using statistics and mathematics method. And then we come up with solutions, either first best, second best, 
we twinkle the design and then improve the solutions and etc and etc uh, what we need to do next is just to see how this design work behaviorally because human being is not easily predictable with statistics and mathematics. So the, the huge advantage we have in the blockchain environment is that we can run these sort of behavioral analysis easily in the domain because everything happens in, 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 in an online environment and uh, the players are out there. So you can even incentivize real DAOs to use your design and test that in the real circumstances. The cost of changing the design is not much and the cost of implementing it is as, as well, not much. For instance, if you want to design a an existing, uh, let's say market, say electricity market, there are lots of political and regulation barriers because any simple a simple change, even though you can prove it with many with any logic that it's going to be better than the status quo, uh, you have lots of barriers for. But in the blockchain environment, you don't have those barriers, and I think it's an exceptional opportunity for those of my colleagues who are interested in in experiments and how behavioral aspects are going to be tested in reality to test whatever mathematics and whatever mathematical and theoretical models that we come up with in this environment. Yeah, I feel I feel it's my ethnographic duty to point out that not everything happens in an online environment. And I think, you know, we've talked about governance um, from a very mechanistic perspective. So I guess like where I come from, there's all these, um, you know, cultural dynamics and norms and kind of um, po- political ideologies that sort of inform people's behaviours and things. But I'm quite interested uh, to to better understand what are the assumptions when you follow this method of round mathematical modelling? And I'm assuming that you're thinking like people are rational, self-interested actors. And then also how is the only way to kind of find out where the assumptions or where the model or the mechanism breaks just to like run these sort of in-practice tests? Mm, um, so the, 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 to answer that question, we need to go back to uh, economies um, 100 years ago when they de- decided to somehow predict the human being. So what uh, you can obviously do nothing and just observe the data, but a one way of scientific way of predicting human being is that just come up with some reasonable assumptions, mainly the insights that mainly come from mathematics, However, somehow uh, reasonable based on some axiomatic axiomatic approaches and and assumptions. For instance, rationality is one of them. And economists at the beginning, when when they even wanted to come up with a demand function approach and what is the demand of an individual or demand in a market, they came up with a few assumptions. One was rationality, one was uh, transitivity, for instance, if I prefer apple to orange and orange to banana, then I'm going to prefer apple to banana. Okay, so these are these are all coming from mathematics. And then having said all of these assumptions, reasonable assumptions, then you construct mathematical function and then you optimal optimize the behavior. Of course, in reality, there are flaws and, and problems with these models, but these are the best we can do in a, uh, let's say, non-realistic environment, in a lab environment in some sense. And then we will go out there and test them and then see what, what else do we need to do? How do we need to twinkle them? 
First is there are a group of behavioral economists who are so against this concept of rationality. They even call it an insult because they say, why would you say <laughs> when people don't know what their choices are? It's not as simple as saying that apple and orange is in reality. And they're absolutely right. I'm not saying they're wrong. They're absolutely right. But we cannot do more than this. So at this, at the first stage to construct something and go further. But this doesn't mean that we, we will not come back to these assumptions and change them. Now, when it comes to the cooperative game, like the one for the voting functions, we have some sort of further assumptions apart from rationality and those that you said, because those that I say initially come up with a reason, let's say, a, a, a personal preferences. But, but in comes to cooperative preferences, then you as a person who would like to design the game or the governance, you don't want one person to be able to control the whole thing. So you don't want to somehow end up with a situation where a group of agents or one agent has control over the whole decentralized network. So Arrow is one math, 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 um, econo economist who was also a mathematician, came up with an impossibility theorem rather than a possibility theorem in the uh, 1970s, if I'm um, not wrong. So he essentially showed with some reasonable assumption, there's no way that you can aggregate individual preferences into a function that shows the aggregation of the society unless that function is dictatorship. So here in the in the blockchain, but this doesn't mean that you cannot do anything. Since Arrow, there are numerous number of papers that added to that and come up with alternative methods. For instance, we know, I mean, majority voting has flaws, but we still use it as the best, best mechanism in the practice. So the same thing is going to happen here in the blockchain and decentralized network. We will come up perhaps with some impossibility results. Say this is not this is not possible to construct. Now, in reality, how could we do uh, better and how could we get to the second best? I mean, I, I think that rationality as a concept is is widely misinterpreted because it's rationality given your own personal set of preferences. What is it that you're trying to maximize? What 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 hedonic pleasure are you looking for in the world or so forth? And in addition to the fact that a rational actor sometimes doesn't spend much time thinking about a choice because they're also trying to minimize the cognitive burden of, you know, no, no one likes to spend all their time overthinking. So it is perfectly rational for um, a, a given individual to make an apparently irrational decision often if they're, if they're maximizing something else. But I, I think it's the right conversation to have. Um, because I think the way that we've engineered much of the crypto ecosystem has embedded a bunch of assumptions about, um, particularly in the DAO space, um, but often on blockchain governance more generally, um, a bunch of assumptions about how and why people should interact. And we've dealt with many protocols in the past who've asked us, well, why don't more token holders vote? Why don't more token holders act in this way mm. or that way when it seems to be rational for them to do so or there's some ideological um, demand that the protocol is putting on its token holders or participants. And I think understanding or at least revealing those assumptions, which is, Kelsey, what your work does from an ethnographic perspective and also what I would argue Payman's work does from precisely the opposite perspective but converging on um on the same point that we need to we need to open up the discussion about those assumptions if we're going to design better technical and human systems 
together. And that's that's why I'm I'm anyway, that's why I'm really proud about what we're doing at the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub and the team that we've got together. But um but but more generally, I think that's the opportunity <laughs> right for us as researchers. Yeah, very well put. I I mean this has just been such a um an interesting discussion for me. I don't think it's often that people kind of talk about these assumptions and the kind of disciplinary approaches that go into what's taken for um uh, you know, sort of as gospel or like the way things should be when it kind of folds into all these ideological beliefs and all these other things we're talking about. And I think one thing that you said, which was, you know, this like blockchains reduce transaction costs. I think that's actually a really nice response for how people are thinking about the space um, to a question that I often get, which is, isn't this just all financialization? Um, so I think that's, like that's a nice way of kind of framing a response or sort of justifying, you know, why it would be the more tokens you have, the more votes you get or some kind of um, plutocratic thing. So with that, I would love to invite um, any final thoughts or comments. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey. I mean, as a final point, there are some things that I can say. First of all, this is a massive area of research. Uh, we don't know anything. I'm just trying to open up a, <laughs> a very... Uh, let's say opportunistic uh, situation for the future it's it's massive in terms of the potential second of all uh, there are usually two approaches that human societies took in the situation that everything is new one is evolutionary where perhaps they try to go with trial and error to get to the right thing the other one is scientific where you perhaps reduce what you're not supposed to do and reduce the amount of set such that the evolutionary aspect works better so as a final point i would say suppose we are in a, we have a piece of paper and there's only one point which is the right point on this piece, piece of paper for all the blockchain networks so how to get to that point there are two ways to get that one is from the design perspective you could perhaps reduce the set of possibilities than a whole piece of paper and the other is just using uh, evolutionary engineering ways and going further and further finding flaws and redesign and rechange i would say both of them together would would make our chances and, and our speed the, the fastest and uh, getting to the right point which is the optimal point as soon as possible yeah i think it's awesome I, I i'm forever impressed by both the design space that we have and the menu of options that we have in the blockchain space um, uh, relative to the real world. The real world doesn't just have higher transaction costs, but it has um, more fixed institutional sets. It has more, it's just more expensive to experiment. And in blockchain, we're just given this amazing environment to um, make new rules, change the rules of the game, change the mechanisms by which we decide the rules of the game. Um, build in new systems and um, micro economies of um, that we can architect to be completely different, completely experimental. Sometimes, sometimes kind of dangerous for those who participate in them. But I'm um, really, really excited. Yeah, I think there's been uh, both invitations to further research um, slash shills that Payman will somehow find a way to incentivize you if you'll collaborate with him on, on research and writing papers. Uh, so thank you so much to Dr. Payman Kazer and Associate Professor Chris Berg. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including links to research at rmitblockchain.io.